Welcome to the Yellow Balloons podcast, a collection of teachings to help you navigate the transformational possibilities of a God-centered perspective. We pray these insights from Scripture will inspire and encourage you. In chapter 6, we begin exploring the story of Daniel in the lion's den. This chapter is the last historical section of the book, concluding the narrative of Daniel and his interactions with those around him. Leading up to the lion's den, we examine powerful rulers, taxes, satraps, and the role they play in the story, culminating in the king's decree. So today we come to the chapter 6 of Daniel, and this is the last of the historical section of Daniel. Chapters 1 through 6 is the history of Daniel and his interaction with other people. He has interpretation of dreams in chapters 1 through 6, but they're generally other people's dreams he's interacting with. And then we'll next time start in chapter 7, and and this is the prophetic section, and we have now the dreams that Daniel is writing about himself. These are dreams that came to Daniel, or visions that came to Daniel. We're going to have three kind of points to today's lesson. First part, we're going to do a historical background, because to really understand this Daniel's in the lion's den passage, you really have to know what's going on in the historical time setting here to get the full sense of what's happening. And then we're going to talk about the story itself, Daniel and the lion's den. And then we're going to look at the life of Daniel, since this is the last kind of historical lesson on Daniel, and the amazing lesson that his life is. If we were going to put headlines on this, we might put headlines like bureaucracy, vast bureaucracy, amazing courage, and a life worth copying or something like that. So let's just read the first couple of verses and then we'll talk about the historical background. It's Daniel 6.1. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be over the whole kingdom and over these three governors of whom Daniel was one that the satraps might give account to them so the king would suffer no loss. Okay, so Darius is the king. We saw that in chapter 5, verse 30, the handwriting on the wall. That very night, Belshazzar, king of the Chaldeans, was slain, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. So we went through that last week, how the Persians dammed up the river and crawled under and took the city, really, with no resistance because they were in there having a big party. And that was uh, corroborated with, by uh, Herodotus, And also there's another historian, I think, that corroborated it, uh, Xenophon, as well. So Darius the Mede receives the kingdom. So here we have it, please Darius to set over the kingdom. So just one of the things that's interesting in reading about the history of this, nobody's sure exactly who this Darius is. When the biblical scholars go to the secular historians and try to mesh what the biblical account says with other archaeological finds, they're really not sure what to make of it. There are multiple theories about who it is. Of course, the secular skeptics always come to the Bible with the view of how can we discredit the Bible. And so they say, well, obviously Cyrus was king of Persia when this great victory over Babylon took place. So the Bible is inaccurate. But that's really weak. If we look over to chapter 6, verse 28, the last verse of this chapter, so this Daniel prospered in the reign of Darius and in the reign of Cyrus the Persian. The writer here is perfectly aware of Cyrus. This is no mistake. And anyway, if someone was going to write a document that's concurrent with people that know the history, they're not going to make an obvious mistake like that and misname who the king is. 
So there's probably two main theories. One is that Darius was king of the Babylonian kingdom under Cyrus. And the other is that they're one in the same person. And if you look at the Hebrew, and I'm no Hebrew scholar, but this phrase, and in the, is actually not in the Hebrew. It just says, so this Daniel prospered reign of Darius, reign of Cyrus the Persian. So you have to kind of interpret what that means. And you could interpret this as in the reign of Darius, even the reign of Cyrus the Persian. Uh, historically, Cyrus's mom was a Mede, and his dad was Persian. So he was both. And so it's perfectly reasonable to think it could be one and the same person. If that's the case, then why would Daniel want to use the phrase Darius the Mede for the person that took over rather than Cyrus the Persian. And what does the Bible have to say about Cyrus the Persian? Well, let's just look at Cyrus first. If we look at 2 Chronicles 36:22, it says, Now in the first year of Cyrus king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus king of Persia, and he made a proclamation that they return. If you look at Ezra 1, verse 1, Now in the first year of Cyrus king of Persia, Verse 2, thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, all the kingdoms of the earth, the Lord God of heaven has given me, and he's commanded me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. So obviously, that is something that the Bible fully recognizes. This is Cyrus. Further, in Isaiah chapter 44, verse 28, there's a prophecy, and it says, Who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and he shall perform all my pleasure, saying to Jerusalem, you shall be built. Now, Isaiah is in the 700s B.C. So here's Isaiah saying, by name, Cyrus is going to say, rebuild my house. By name. Names him. Cyrus, my shepherd. So why, since the Bible says Cyrus is going to rebuild Jerusalem, and Daniel knows this, because Daniel, we know, is a biblical scholar. We know that from his reading of Jeremiah and saying, hey, we've got 70 years. We're getting close. God, what's happening here? Well, so why would he want to use the term Darius the Mede? Well, interestingly, if we go to Jeremiah 51, verse 11, and this is a proclamation of Jeremiah against Babylon. And it says, Make the arrows bright, gather the shields. The Lord has raised up the spirit of the kings of the Medes, for his plan is against Babylon to destroy it, because it is the vengeance of the Lord, the vengeance for his temple. So the Bible predicts the Medes will overturn Babylon, and the Bible predicts that Cyrus will cause the house to be rebuilt. And it seems reasonable that one of the very distinct possibilities is it's one and the same person. Darius the Mede, who conquered Babylon. Cyrus the Persian, who restored the temple. Could be, could be the same guy. Could be two different guys. But as we know, the Bible is pretty fond of one person fulfilling multiple prophecies, even as Jesus did. Now, we've got the suffering servant Messiah in the Old Testament, Joseph, and we've got the conquering Messiah, David, and turns out to be the same person, even though they do two completely different things. So, you know, nobody's, nobody's sure. There's not a complete meshing of information, but that's probably the most reasonable explanation based on what I've read. So here we have Darius or Cyrus sets up the kingdom. So I'm going to presume it's the same person for the purposes of this historical setup. Now, so he sets over the kingdom 120 satraps. Now, let me talk to you a little bit about what this kingdom was. 
This is from Wikipedia, which is uh, on the internet. So yeah, obviously, obviously it's true. Yeah, I actually anything that's crowdsourced, I think, is probably more reliable than some something that comes from someone who styles themselves as an expert. Because experts, you know, have to be right all the time in order to sell something, even though they know better. But it says this, by share of population, the largest empire was the Achaemenid Empire, better known as the Persian Empire, which accounted for approximately 49 million of the world's 112 million people in around 480 B.C., an astonishing 44%. Originating in modern-day Iran, the empire was first established by Cyrus the Great and included parts of Central Asia, the Mediterranean, North Africa, and even European territories such as ancient Thrace and Macedonia. It was larger than any previous empire in history. It is equally notable for its successful model of a centralized bureaucratic administration through satraps under the King of Kings for building infrastructure such as road systems and a postal system, the use of an official language across its territories, and the development of civil services and a large professional army. My studies of Alexander the Great, slight as they are, have been fascinating to me. Because Alexander the Great, as we'll see when we get to seven, eight, nine, is this billy goat that goes and just furiously knocks down all these empires. The way he went about it is really fascinating. As I recall, and this is very high-level synthesis on my part, not an attempt to accurately represent best scholarship, but basically the way I understand it is Alexander went in and took over some cities, conquered it like you'd normally conquer it, and went in and kind of assessed what was going on and realized, hey, the eunuchs, the bureaucracy runs everything here, and the taxation is really high, and people hate these guys. So what I'm going to do is I'm just going to kill them, and I'm going to go find some honest guys, substantially cut taxes, and make people's lives better. So he did that a few times, and word gets out. Word spreads. Hey, this guy's a tax cut politician. Then he would go to a city, and he would roll up and say, Hey, I'm here, Alexander the Great. I'll give you two choices. One is you can throw the heads of all the guys that are overtaxing you over the wall, or I'll come in and kill everybody. And I'm perfectly indifferent to which one it is. Take your pick. And, of course, the heads come over the wall, you know, pretty much. And so the cities dropped just like flies. He, he just rolled it all up. He rolled an entire empire. You see how giant this empire was. He rolled it up in a matter of years. It's because he didn't so much conquer it as they welcomed him in. Because, hey, you know, get rid of these corrupt bureaucrats and get somebody else. I mean, if I'm going to be a slave, I might as well be a slave to somebody that's not a corrupt overtaxer. So this comports with what I already knew of history. Now these satraps are interesting fellows. And we can see here, if we're going to have 120 over the whole empire, can you imagine 4 billion people today, if we're, if we're talking about you know, half the world's population, can you imagine 120 people controlling 4 billion people? That would be the proportion. You know, if someone was in control of America, one person said, I get to tax all of America, and I'll just keep a little for myself. Can you imagine how rich that person would be? Well, that's sort of what we see going on here. Let me read you something about some satraps. Have you heard of the seven wonders of the world? Uh, can anybody name the seven wonders of the world? Any of them? Yes? The Hanging Gardens of Babylon, not the Hanging Baskets. <laughs> hanging Gardens of Babylon. Okay, that's one. Any other ones? Yeah, the Giza Pyramid. Good. Anybody remember any others? Those are two big ones. No, not the Sphinx, the lighthouse, the lighthouse, yeah, I forget where it was, Sardis or something like that, I forget, I forget what, Sidonia, Sidonia, right? Any other ones? 
the uh, Colossus at Rhodes is the only one of the one I can remember. But there's one that no one would remember. I didn't remember it. And it's the tomb of Mausolus. We get a word from the tomb of Mausolus. Can anybody guess what the word is? Mausoleum. That's correct. Mausoleum. And Mausolus built this tomb, and it was such an amazing aesthetic feat that it became an ancient wonder of the world. And Mausolus was a satrap, not a king. He was a satrap in the Persian Empire. And the tomb was probably built around 350 B.C. So where would a satrap get the kind of money that it takes to build an artistic achievement that would rank among the seven wonders of the world? Yes, by taking taxes and taking a siphon off the taxes. Now listen to this again, Wikipedia. Part of the cause of the empire's decline had been the heavy tax burden put upon the state, which eventually led to economic decline. Couldn't happen to us. An estimate of the tribute imposed on the subject nations was up to $180 million a year, which does not include the material goods and supplies that were supplied as taxes. After the high overhead of government, the military, and the bureaucracy, Whatever the satraps could safely dip into the coffers for themselves, this money went into the royal treasury. I doubt it. I imagine it went first into their personal treasury and then into the royal treasury. According to Diodorus at Persopolis, Alexander III found some 180,000 attic talents of silver besides the additional treasure the Macedonians were carrying that already had been seized in Damascus. This amounted to $2.7 billion. So anyway, vast sums coming from these taxes. Now, let's read these couple of verses again with that in mind. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps. So these 120 guys are going to control the bureaucracy over his whole kingdom. To be over the whole kingdom and over these three governors, of whom Daniel was one, that the satraps might give account to them that the king would suffer no loss. You get it? Would suffer no loss. No loss of what? Money. So there's two things a king can worry about losing. One is his kingdom to an army. Now, at this point in time, this is about 66 years after Daniel was first brought to Babylon, so he's probably in his 80s by now. Would you take an 80-year-old eunuch and put over your palace guard to keep from getting your kingdom taken away from you? No, I don't think so. You put in charge of the people to whom are going to give account so the king would suffer no loss, you put the most honest guy. So you got three governors of whom Daniel was one that the king might suffer no loss Verse 3, then this Daniel distinguished himself among the governors and satraps. If your job is to give account and suffer no loss, how would you most distinguish yourself? The most money going into the treasury, which means less money is going where? Into the mausoleum fund. Get it? Okay, so then this Daniel distinguished himself among the governors and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him, and the king gave thought to setting him over the whole realm. So what's going to happen to the mausoleum funds, all 120 of them, if Daniel gets set over the whole realm? My river house is at stake. My art collection is at stake. My lifestyle is at stake. I've got a real problem if I'm a satrap here, right? So when you're a bureaucrat and you have a problem 
and that problem is an honest fellow bureaucrat, what do you do? There's only one thing to do. Assassinate them. Okay? You can either assassinate their character and discredit them so that they have no more influence, or you can kill them. Now, when would you choose killing them? When, well, yeah, when, it, when it can't get back to you, right? When there's a way to do it where there's no fingerprints on it, obviously, right? If you're thinking like a bureaucrat. If you can't do that, then you discredit them. Does that happen today? It's, yeah, human, humanity hasn't changed all that much, right? And remember, when we saw in Revelation, we saw the single beast that was like all the kingdoms that went before it. You know, we see vast bureaucracy building even today across the world. And people in democratic nations are starting to say, hey, wait a minute, I thought I voted for somebody that represented me. Who are these guys making my, these laws over me? Well, we're fighting the same thing today because these kingdoms all built on one another. So, verse 4, so the governors and satraps did the only reasonable thing that bureaucrats do when they're at risk. They sought to find some charge against Daniel concerning the kingdom. So what you do is you find something they're doing wrong. Are you doing the same thing wrong? Of course you are. But if all of you get together and accuse this other guy of doing the same wrong thing, then only, you only apply the law against the people that are getting in the way, right? That's the way we do things in the bureaucracy world. But here they could find no charge or fault because he was faithful. See, he was actually collecting the taxes and not keeping any payola. If he was keeping just like 10% as much as they were, they could still get him. But he's just totally honest. God, what is, what's Daniel thinking here, right? All this money going through his hands, he's perfectly okay with the culture to take his share. You, you could have had a mausoleum that was Daniel's mausoleum. He, he could have even, yeah, he could have put his testimony in it. Think of all the people that would have been saved. See, he could have, he could have been justified himself. Everybody else is doing it. No, not Daniel. He's just going to serve the king, pagan king. And the pagan king that came in and took over from the previous guy, he's just going to serve him and collect all the taxes honestly. Nor was there any error or fault found in him. What a guy, huh? He's in his 80s now. So this guy's in his 80s, and he's still at it. It's pretty amazing. So then verse 5, these men said, We shall not find any charge against this Daniel unless we find it against him concerning the law of his God. So now these guys, they've looked at his administration. They've tried to find some corruption. This, is, this in modern days is called opposition research. So you do a deep dive. And in our world, if you can't find someone breaking a rule, then you make up something that they did wrong. You just make it up. And you accuse them of that and prosecute them anyway. They were just too honest. That's the problem. So they know he's righteous. They know that they don't have anything against him under their law. So they go to a different law. Let's, let's find something law they've got. So these governors and satraps thronged before the king and said thus to him, King Darius, live forever. No doubt these are the guy, same guys that told Belshazzar, live forever, but you know, you adapt. <laughs> all the governors of the kingdom, all the governors of the kingdom, see, social proof here, right? Everybody thinks what we're about to tell you. All the governors of the kingdom, does that include Daniel? Of course it does, according to this representation, right? All the governors of the kingdom, the administrators and satraps, the counselors and advisors, have consulted together to establish a royal statute and make a firm decree that whoever petitions any god or man for 30 days except you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the decree and sign the writing so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which does not alter. 
So the Medes and Persians had this law. It's a kingdom of laws and of bureaucracy. So they had this law that if the king made a law, it could not be revoked. Now you think about the wisdom of that. Remember when uh, Nebuchadnezzar said, kill all the Chaldeans, kill all the wise men, what Daniel said is, why is the king's uh, edict so hasty? What, what's, what's going on here? And they're kind of slow playing, killing the wise men. They probably went and killed a few guys that nobody liked anyway, right, to start with. And they're kind of slow playing it because, you know, the, change, the king may change his mind. And what the Persians did is they made a rule, that, hey, if you make a law, it has to be followed. It has to be followed. You can't, you can't change it. So these guys come in and they say, hey, all of us want to do this. And they're playing on the king's ego, obviously. We just want to worship you for 30 days. We want to get up and do our devotional to you. We, you know why? Because all we care about is you. That's all we love. We love you. Only you. Hey, that might make a good song. Only you. So, no. And, and Derry's like, oh, well, if all of my governors want to do this, who am I to stand in their way? So, therefore, King Darius signed the written decree. This teaching will continue in the following episode. Thanks for listening to the Yellow Balloons podcast. If you want more information on adopting a God-centered perspective, visit our website at yellowballoons.net. And if you have any questions related to what you just heard, we would love to hear from you. Please email us at contact at yellowballoons.net. Thanks for listening. 